Tonight I would like to begin by reading to you a familiar passage from the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, where the text reads, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. We know that text because it's one of the passages we run to whenever tragedy hits, whenever uh, serious times of trial and sorrow come, when uncertainties plague us. It is comforting to go to this passage, to this verse, and remind ourselves that there is a God who is in control of all things, and God has something good to make out of the situation that from our vantage point, we may struggle to find something good. We may be suffering, we may be in pain, we may have a series of doubts, but this passage says God is at work causing everything that happens to work for our good. But often we stop at that comma and don't finish the verse where Paul says, to those who are called according to His purpose. And we must, if we're going to understand Paul's intention with this verse, we must consider that phrase and what comes after because God is not simply working everything together for our happiness. He's not simply making things happen for our good as we think of good. He has a purpose for everything He is doing. And he goes on to explain what that purpose is. He says, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren, and these whom He predestined, He also called, and these whom He called, He also justified, and these whom He justified, He also glorified. Now we know why this passage is in the Scripture. It's to give us something to argue about. Predestination, election, foreknowledge, free will. Paul put this here so that for 2,000 years we can have people on this side and that side arguing about whether or not God is more sovereign than man is. Actually, that's not why this passage is here. We are told explicitly what Paul is after with this. This whole business of predestination and foreknowledge has a very specific intent. Did you notice the words, so that? That is a purpose clause. The word in the Greek that introduces this is introducing a purpose. Here's the purpose for predestination. Here's the purpose for God working all things together for our good. This is what he's after. He wants to conform us to the image of his son, but even that is not the final purpose. It's so that he, the son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, Paul chooses the word firstborn for a very specific purpose. In antiquity, the firstborn son held the place of preeminence in the family once the father was gone. The firstborn son was the one who received the larger inheritance. The firstborn son was given dominion over the rest of the clan. He became the leader of the group. And as Paul speaks of Jesus being the firstborn of many brethren, he is calling to mind 
an occasion that took place back in the book of Genesis, chapter 27. This is the chapter that includes Jacob living up to his name. His name means the deceiver. You know this story. Esau is the older brother. They are twins, but Esau came out first. He's older by a hair or two. And Isaac is an old man, and he can't see very well, and he calls Esau in, and he says, Esau, go out and take your bow and arrow and hunt down some game and make for me a delicious meal and come back, and I want to bestow my patriarchal blessing upon you. So he sends Esau out. Well, his wife hears this. She has a favorite son, Jacob. She calls Jacob over, makes him look and smell and feel like Esau, cooks up a nice meal that Isaac would enjoy, and sends Jacob, the secondborn, in under the guise of Esau. And of course, he shows up and he introduces himself to his father. And we pick up in verse 18 that he came to his father and said, My father, and Isaac says, Here I am, who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau. But he didn't just stop with his name. He said, I am Esau, your firstborn. He wants to make sure he gets that right. So Isaac is hearing the voice, and he says, it sure sounds like Jacob. Come over here. Let me smell you and feel you, touch you. He says, well, you feel like Esau. You smell like Esau. All right, I assume you're Esau, even though my ears are playing tricks on me. When we come down to verse 27, it says, He came close and kissed him, and when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. And then he begins to pronounce the blessing upon the one he thinks is his firstborn. Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth, and an abundance of grain and new wine. May peoples serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. Do you hear the content of his pronouncement of blessing upon what he thinks is his firstborn? May nations come and bow at your feet. May they kneel before you. May all of your brothers be subservient to you. You are going to be the king. You are going to be the ruler. The firstborn was given that place of dominion and rule. In Romans chapter 8, when Paul speaks of Jesus, of the Son being the firstborn of many brethren, he is calling to mind this idea. So God chose a group of people to be conformed to the image of His Son so that His Son would have this place of preeminence with a multitude of brothers who serve Him, nations bowing down before Him. Do you realize what Paul is telling us here? He is giving us the answer to the question, why does anything exist? 
Why did God create the world? Why did God ever say, I'm going to make this cosmos? Was God lonely? After millennia, centuries, infinite numbers of years, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit got bored with one another. They thought maybe we could have a little fun and we'll create this planet with lots of people. Of course not. There is no boredom within the Godhead. There is no need within the Godhead. They have perfect communion and fellowship just among themselves. God created the world because He had promised His Son a kingdom. Because He had promised His Son that there would be those who bow down before Him and honor Him as King. Before He ever created heaven and earth, before He ever said, let there be light, the Father said to His Son, Son, ask of Me the nations and I will grant them to you. I am going to create a multitude of people who will worship you. This is what the Hebrew writer talks about in the first chapter, that he is the heir of the world, the one who inherits everything. This is what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, where he says all things were created by Christ, by the Son, by Jesus, and, do you remember? For him. Another statement of purpose. Everything was created by him and for him. Everything that exists, the mountain ranges, the animals, and most importantly, human beings. The reason God made any of them was because in eternity past, God the Father promised God the Son that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. The purpose of the entire existence of the universe is to worship and exalt Jesus, the Son of God. Now if that is true of the universe, we can be sure it is true of the stories of the Bible. As we saw last time, everything in the Scripture points to Christ. Everything that we read is to exalt Jesus Christ, is to prepare the way for Christ, or explain the need for Christ, and ultimately to lead to a group of people, men and women, who will bow the knee and honor Jesus as the firstborn over all creation. So as we continue to look at some of the content of the book of Genesis, as we're still looking through the Pentateuch, the five books of the Old Testament, and we try to find Jesus on these pages, keep in the back of your mind, or maybe better, at the forefront of your mind, everything we read ultimately is to get us to Jesus Christ and His worship. So let's go back now and look at Genesis chapter 1 and see if we can find Jesus lying behind the words on these pages and see how these point us to worship of Christ. Genesis chapter 1, we have the story of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made everything. He made uh, the things that fly and swim, and He made the flowers and the bees, and, and everything that we call creation He made in those first few days. Then He comes to the apex. He comes to His crowning achievement to the most important of all of His creatures. We pick up in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in His own image, 
In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. One of the key phrases, maybe the most prominent phrase in the passage that I read, is a, is a word that is repeated several times. And when the Scripture repeats something several times, that's for the purpose of emphasis. I think the Lord wants us to understand something about mankind. That man has been created in God's image. That seems to be pretty important here. Now what is the image of God? What does that mean that we've been made in the image of God? Some would argue that our rationality is what is the image of God on us. That's what separates us from the other created order, from the other animals. Uh, we don't watch animals operate and, and believe that they actually process logically like we do sometimes. Uh, so some would say rationality is that image of God. Others would say self-consciousness. Others would say the ability to have emotions and feelings. We're not told precisely what the image of God is here. But I think we're safe in assuming that at least part of it is bound up in the idea of rule. Because again, in the context of being made in the image of God, he immediately says, let them go and fill the earth and rule over it and subdue it. God is the king over all the earth. He has entrusted to mankind a sort of vice regency. Uh, this, this delegated authority to rule over mankind. That is our divine mandate. That is what mankind is called to do. He said, I want you to go and fill this planet with a whole lot of little Adams and Eves who will grow up and create more Adams and Eves. And I want you to write poetry. I want you to write music. I want you to build buildings and cities and civilizations. I want you to take this entire planet and make it orderly and give it beauty. I've created it in, in its current form. Now you go fill it with all kinds of different ways to bring glory to me. Go and rule. Uh, tame the wild animals and create civilization for my glory. That's the mandate given to humankind. David picks up this idea in Psalm 8. He's pondering the heavenly bodies. He's pondering the, the stars and the moon and the sun. And he looks out at this massive creation, the space that he can't see the end of, and he looks and sees just this wondrous astronomical view. And he reflects on that and he says, what is man? that you would give thought to a little creature like us. Man is not even the biggest of the animals that walk on the earth. Why would you look down and smile upon man and give mankind authority over your entire planet? And he marvels at that. He says, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name and an attitude of gratefulness for this responsibility and this privilege. But... Are we in control? Have we ruled over the earth? Have we tamed all the animals? Have we brought the world into the kind of uh, subjugation that God intended? No. Just go up into the mountains sometime in the next few weeks as uh, the thaw begins, as the bears come out of hibernation and walk up to a bear and try to exercise your sovereign rule 
over that bear, and you'll be uh, questioning whether or not man has accomplished this mandate. The Hebrew writer tells us that we have not achieved success. He quotes from Psalm 8, and he, he offers this. He, he says, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you were concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And then he comments on that. He says, For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now... We do not yet see all things subjected to him. Man has not exercised rule and dominion over the earth as God commanded. But, he says, we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely, Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We do not see mankind in general ruling over planet earth, but we do see him, Jesus, ruling over heaven and earth. You remember what he said after the resurrection? Before he sent his disciples out to take the gospel to the nations, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am now the crown king of the entire cosmos and I'm sending you out as my disciples and apostles. Jesus Christ is the man who has fulfilled the mandate of Genesis 1 to rule over all of creation and he is currently in the process of bringing all of his enemies under his feet so he has total dominion over the world. Genesis 1, the command to rule the world, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the Lord and King. Now there's another aspect of this, the image idea, the rule idea. Adam was created as a reflection of God. He looks like him, so to speak. Now we know that God doesn't actually look like anything because he doesn't have a body. One of those concepts that uh, my toddler children still struggle with. They like to talk about his eyes and ears and quickly jump in and say, I know he doesn't have eyes and ears, but he sees us, right? And they wrestle with trying to figure that out, and we have to keep calling them back to the fact that those are metaphors, those are methods of communicating to us something about God. But we know he doesn't look like anything in his essence. He's spirit. He's God. He's, he's not like us. And yet, the Bible says, Adam was made... Mankind is made in his image. There's something about us that reflects or sort of looks like or outlines God. It's sort of like we are little pictures of the character of God. But when Jesus comes on the scene, the Bible tells us not that he was made in the image of God, but that he is the very image of God in himself. That's what the Hebrew writer says. He is the radiance of God, the exact representation of God. Remember what he said to the disciples when they came to him and said, Lord, before you go, we know you're, you're leaving us, you're going away, but before you do that, we have just one little favor. Could you show us the Father? We want to see the Father. 
And Jesus, you can almost see him shaking his head and saying, how long am I going to put up with you idiots? I don't think he said that. I mean, he might have thought it. He says, look, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You don't need any other picture. I am God in the flesh. I am the very image of God. I am the Father. He and I are one. Jesus is not merely a picture or an image of God. He is the image of God. When, when mankind is created here in the image of God, again, that points like a giant arrow to the coming of the one who would be God with flesh on. He is God incarnate. So then we flip over to chapter 2 of Genesis, and we have a more narrow account of the creation. And here we are told how God intends for mankind to exercise rule over the earth. In verse 15, we read, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Here's Eden, which is sort of a microcosm of the earth. It's that uh, special paradise that God has created for man in his pristine state. He puts Adam there and he says, get to work. I'm not going to do all of the work for you. You've got to do a little hoeing. You've got to do a little planting. But it's going to be real easy. You'll produce a great crop and you'll enjoy life. But go and cultivate and keep and tend this garden I have made. But as he observes it, Adam trying to accomplish this, he looks down and says, that guy needs help. He needs serious help. It's not good for him to accomplish this on his own. And so he makes woman. And we read in verse 21, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So God has set the paradigm. This is how mankind is to rule the world. I'm putting Adam in the garden. I'm entrusting him with responsibility to cultivate and to tend it. And I've provided for him a helper to accomplish that task. And this is the method that we should use to rule the world. This is the inauguration of marriage, of course. It's the institution of the family, because now as husband and wife, they are to produce offspring, who will then, the, um, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall start a family, and they shall exercise rule on the earth, and they shall produce kids, and on and on and on it goes. But the Apostle Paul comes along, and he reads back in Genesis chapter 2, and he decides that there is a greater purpose being fulfilled here. There is a more significant element to this establishment of husband and wife in Genesis chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 5, the passage that most of us who are married know quite well, it's the, the longest exhortation and example of what marriage should be like. He says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church. 
he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he begins to talk about Christ and the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So, in this manner, husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. See how he keeps going back and forth between husband and wife and Christ and the church. This is what Christ did. This is what Christ has come to do. This is the church's responsibility. And this is what husbands should do. This is what wives should do. Back and forth, back and forth. And then he quotes from Genesis chapter 2. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Then he says this. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So he goes back to Genesis chapter 2 where God establishes marriage and he says, as he quotes word for word, I'm talking about a vast and profound mystery here. That statement in Genesis chapter 2 was written about Christ and his bride, the church. Almost as a follow-up thought, he says, Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife as himself, and the wife must see that she respects her husband. But it's like he got so lost and enraptured in his contemplation of how everything points to Christ that he understood by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this business about husbands and wives had a picture, a portrayal far beyond simply a man and a woman but it was to give us some information about the Son of the living God who would come and take to himself a bride, the body of Christ, or the church. So as we think about marriage, it is not simply or merely a man being provided with a helpmate. It is not merely a man and a woman finding companionship. It is not merely about making children. It is not merely about establishing the foundation for society. The most important reason or purpose or intention that God had in mind when He established the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage was to give us a picture of Jesus Christ. To point to His Son who would come and take to himself a wife. That is how Genesis 2 points to Jesus Christ according to the Apostle Paul. It is a picture. So marriage is not the end. It is a means to an end. It is to show us Christ's love and authority over the church. Well, then we come to chapter 3. And we discuss this to some degree, last time. This is, of course, a record of the fall of mankind into sin. The man who is placed in this garden, who is married to Eve, and who is tempted by the serpent is Adam, the first man. It doesn't take a whole lot 
of New Testament scholarship to understand how Adam points to Christ. Because Jesus is specifically referred to on a few occasions as the last Adam or the second Adam or the next Adam. So as we look at what Adam did and who he was, we see a type or a shadow of the coming one, the Messiah. Now think about the setting here. Adam is put in this lush garden. He is placed in a, in, in a paradise. He has all the food and drink that he could want. He's there with his beautiful wife in uh, sinless interaction. Oh, to be in a relationship in sinless perfection. And that is no comment on my wife. She would say the same thing. What a glory it would be to be married in a place where neither of us were sinners. That was the situation with Adam and Eve. They were in, uh, in a place that's beyond our wildest dreams. It was beautiful. Their needs were met. Their desires were fulfilled. And the serpent comes along, tempts Eve to sin. Eve is deceived. She sins. She leads Adam into sin. This is what the first Adam did. And the result of his choice was thrusting all of mankind into judgment. Because now we are all sinners, says the Apostle Paul. We are all regarded as sinners because we all sinned in the first Adam. But then Jesus comes on the scene. He is led out into the wilderness, away from all comforts, away from anything that might give him joy and happiness, including food. For 40 days he doesn't eat, so he's starving. And he is out there alone. No companionship, no loving wife, no sinless perfection relationship with other people. It's just Jesus out there in the middle of nowhere. And the serpent comes. Satan comes to tempt him. Now remember how the first Adam fell. God said, do not eat of that fruit. Serpent comes along and says, you don't really trust the Word of God, do you? You can't really take Him at face value. He's lying to you. He's deceiving you. He knows that if you eat of that tree, you'll become God. He doesn't want you to become God. He's threatened by you. He's lying to you. Adam's sin resulted from a failure to believe the Word of God. Suddenly, Adam decided that he and Eve were the judges of God's Word. Did God really say, don't eat of any tree? No, He didn't say that. Hmm. But now you got me thinking. What did He say? And did, did what He say, is that the truth? Can I, can I depend upon that Word? Is He really giving me some reliable information here? Now man has just become the scrutinizer of God's Word. That caused Adam and Eve to sin. Jesus is led out of the wilderness, out there hungry because he's been fasting all this time. Satan comes along and tempts him, and you remember how Jesus responded. It is written. He knew the Word of God. He did not waver from the Word of God. He proclaimed the Word of God 
to Satan and said over and over and over again, it is written, it is written, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. As the second Adam, Jesus did not give in to temptation. He did not sin. He was not led astray. He did not evaluate the Word of God. He simply proclaimed it as truth. And He overcame the temptation. This portrayal of Adam and Eve falling into sin points us to the perfect man who would come. It exalts the Lord Jesus Christ as the sinless one who is tempted in every way as we are, the Bible says, but without sin. He did not doubt the Word of God. He proclaimed it. In fact, He embodied the Word of God. He was the Word of God. This account in Genesis chapter 3 leads us to Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Then as we move through Genesis to chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9, of course we have the account of the flood. What a sad state of affairs we have when we get to chapter 6 where God makes this comment about mankind. He says, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I made him. Man has become so evil, so wicked, so corrupt, that God looks down with grief that he even started this whole business because man is so corrupt. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And God took this man Noah and his wife and their children, and he said, I want you to build this enormous boat. And Noah said, great. What's a boat? Because I'm going to send floodwaters, and I'm going to submerge the whole land in a flood. And he says, great. What's a flood? We have no resistance from Noah whatsoever. He just started building. And after many, many years, he creates this massive boat that preserves Noah and his family and the choice animals. And God, in his justice, destroys the rest of mankind, killing probably millions upon millions of people because of their wickedness. The New Testament writer, Peter, looks back on this event, God's wrath upon sinners, this vehicle, this vessel, this, this uh, ark that saved Noah and his family from God's wrath, and he draws a straight line to Jesus Christ. He said, just like when Noah was saved by the water, which lifted up that ark so that it was not submerged under the floods, baptism now saves you. Not the cleansing of dirt from the flesh, not the actual immersion into the liquid, but the appeal to God for a clean conscience, the calling out to God for forgiveness, the calling upon His name. And then he says, by the resurrection or through the resurrection of Christ. How are we saved from the wrath of God that is pictured so graphically? In the floodwaters condemning mankind, we are saved through the death and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. This event that takes up several chapters where God's justice is poured out is a picture, a type, a portrayal, a foreshadowing of Jesus who would come to rescue us from the wrath of God. Then we come to chapter 12, the call of Abraham, the promises made to Abraham, which become the most significant promises that will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ. And Abraham and his offspring become the key figures of the rest of the Old Testament. And in chapter 12, we have the promises, I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, make your name great, you shall be a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And then he makes the most significant promise, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. As the book of Genesis continues, that is changed slightly, and the phrase is added, and in your seed all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. In your descendants, your offspring. So God makes this literally cosmic declaration to Abraham. Every people group, every family on the earth will receive a blessing by means of your children. Well, Abraham has a son eventually, Ishmael. God says, no, that's not the promised son. He gives him another son via his lawful wife, Sarah, Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob has the 12 tribes, and so unfolds the rest of the Old Testament history. And yet, when we come to the New Testament, we are told it wasn't Isaac, it wasn't Jacob, it wasn't any of Jacob's children, it wasn't any of their offspring that fulfilled this promise to Abraham. But that would have to wait for millennia until the arrival of Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, calling back to what we were just talking about. Then he explains the fulfillment. He does not say seeds, referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. Now, if all we had was the Old Testament, we would think that must be Isaac. That's the one child that Abraham actually had. Because Ishmael was born to the slave woman. He didn't count. This must be referring to Isaac. And we would think, how was Isaac a blessing to all the families of the earth? But Paul does not leave us to speculate. He, refer, he tells us who this seed is. It is Christ. The fulfillment of the promise that in you all the nations will be blessed, in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed, is Jesus Christ. That promise to Abraham became the foundational promise for that scene that we looked at last time in Revelation chapter 7, where there are people from every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered before the throne, bowing down, before the firstborn, before the, the Son of God, the Messiah who would come. All of those things in Genesis point us to Jesus Christ. We will look at one more. Genesis chapter 22. This is that passage where God asks Abraham to do 
the unimaginable. Says Abraham, you have this son who's now probably near his teens. We don't know for sure. He's the son of promise, the only legitimate son that Abraham has. He says, Abraham, I want you to take him to a place that I will show you and offer him as a sacrifice to me on the altar. Abraham responds in obedience. The next morning he gets up, he packs the mule, he gets all the supplies. He says, Isaac, come on, we're going. We're going to sacrifice. Isaac is old enough to understand a little bit of what's going on here. And he says, uh, Dad, don't we need something to offer? Don't we need a sacrifice? Where's the animal? What are we taking? Are we taking a goat? Are we taking a bull? What are we going to put on this altar? Abraham says, the Lord replied, and off they go. And Abraham takes his son, ties him down to the altar, lights the fire, and is ready with knife in hand and raised to sacrifice his only son, the child of promise, to God. And before he kills Isaac, God stops him. The angel of the Lord called out to him and says, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering. And it's this next phrase that is so important. In the place of his son. God had called Abraham to kill Isaac. That raises all kinds of questions in our mind. How could God do this? Child sacrifice is expressly forbidden by God. How could Abraham do this? What faith in God it was. And yet, when we think about it from a different perspective, for God... Anywhere, anytime, to require the death of a sinful human being is not unjust. We are all sinners. We are born sinners. We commit sin to show that we actually are sinners. And anytime on planet Earth, any day of the week, when God decides to exhibit His wrath and justice upon a human being and bring His life to an end, that is not unjust. That is just. And so there is nothing sinful or unjust about God requiring the life of Isaac. But he didn't take the life of Isaac. He provided another animal to be sacrificed in the place of Abraham's son. And I probably don't have to go into great detail to explain to you how this points us to Christ. Because we're all Isaac in this story. We are all the sinning human being who is worthy of death. And Jesus Christ comes on the scene 
and He becomes the substitution for the punishment that we deserve. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world in the plan of God, slain at the hands of the Romans by the appeal of the Jews in real time and history some 2,000 years ago. He was that Lamb, or in this case, that Ram, that was taken from the thicket and offered on the altar so that God could spare us the wrath that we deserve. Again, the text points without doubt to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we read through the rest of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and on through the Old Testament, if we are looking, we will find every aspect of the story points us to Jesus Christ and the ultimate goal that God has in view. The ultimate point of this story is to culminate in His Son, the Lord Jesus, and to create a world of men who will bow down before Him in worship. He came as the suffering sacrifice to atone for our sins and to take upon Himself the wrath that we deserve. He was raised back to life on the third day and ascended to heaven where He sits even now as King and Sovereign Lord, given all authority over heaven and earth. And the reason for all existence is that Jesus would be the firstborn of many brethren who would bow the knee before Him. That is the story of mankind. That is the story of the universe. And that is the story of the Old Testament. It all is fulfilled in Jesus Christ.